This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Our guest today is Kristen West. Kristen, are you ready to be great today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Christian founded AS Solution because he couldn't find an executive protection company he wanted to work for. The kind that replaces cookie-cutter security with a dedication to keeping clients safe, as well as happy and productive, all based on a solid understanding of the principles, corporate culture, and personal preferences. He's a hands-on professional who leads on the front. Christian has developed and led protection programs in more than 170 countries for, 25, for more than 25 years. He has worked all areas of protection from undercover to high risk, government, corporate, celebrity, and high net worth. Christian has served as a close protection agent, team leader, EP specialist, EP manager, and a high level consultant for many Fortune 500 companies, and has directed security efforts for war tours for major artists and the world's largest IPO roadshow. Christian, thanks so much for being here today. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, inviting me on the podcast. Yes, and you, and you used to live in Seattle, but you're in Vegas now, right? I do. I mean, I've been down here in Vegas for um, about a year and a half, but before that, I was in, um, in Seattle for 12 years. And so you just moved to Vegas to move the company there, better business opportunities, to get more sun, get away from this crazy gloom and doom weather here we have in Seattle? Well, you know, I'm actually uh, one of the few that absolutely love the weather up there because uh, originally coming from Denmark, it's um, Denmark and Europe. It's actually kind of the same weather as uh, Seattle has. Just uh, Seattle is, is kind of better because it doesn't get as um, cold as it does back home in Denmark. But I grew up with the rain and the gloominess and all that. So I don't mind at all. <laughs> so like home to you then. Yeah. Yeah. So. So, Christian, uh, a few years ago, you wrote a book called a book called like, Intro for Corporations and Industry Professionals. Can you talk uh -huh. about that book or like why you wrote that book? Yeah. You know, um, I've been in executive protection my, my whole life. And um, when I started in this business, it was um, kind of like not a real industry, right? There were some teams here and some teams there. And um, we all kind of like tried to do the best that we could, but none of us had a lot of uh, corporate experience. And over the, the 20 years I worked in this field, it has become a real industry. And over the years, I've had a lot of good colleagues who has written really, really good books about um, how you become an agent and how you work as an agent, where nobody has really done it on um, how you build a corporate executive protection program. And more important, a book that uh, caters to um, supervisors, detail leaders, and even managers. And um, the company that I used to run and, um, and, and, and own, we had... Um, so many good examples and so many good notes and we started up so many programs that we um, kind of decided it would be a great thing to um, see if we could put it all down in a book and um, that's kind of like the main reason for for why we did it so the book did you self-publish it or was it published like through one of the big publishers no it, it was self-published and uh, primarily sold uh, online and uh, via amazon well, for, for anyone out there about to write a book, any lessons you can pass on to them, what they should do or not do? <laughs> well, it's, first of all, it's a lot of work. 
you know, one thing is actually getting all the content together and, and, and writing the book. But what I find is um, the hardest is once you've written the book and you kind of uh, go over it and getting ready to publish it, that's when it becomes really hard, especially when it's a um, kind of like professional learning book, because um, you have to be sure that um, what you say throughout the whole book is kind of the same message, which of course it is, right? But you know, when you kind of piece together notes and chapters and stuff like that, sometimes you can um, corner some of the terms or whatever the wrong way. And a lot of times, some of the stuff that, that, that we talked about in this book, there is no set terms for, right? So a lot of times um, you have to be sure that uh, the readers can understand what it is that, that you're talking about. I actually think that's, that's the hardest part. And, um, you know, people think that uh, or a lot of people have this idea that writing a book is easy and you make a lot of money on it and stuff like that. I definitely think if you have something that, that you want to talk about and, and whatever, get it out there, write the book and whatever, but uh, don't do it for the money and um, expect it to take a long time and be a lot of work. Chris, from the time you had the, the idea to, to write the book, the date, the date was published, how long was that? Six months, a year, four or longer? Um, well, for us, it was around a year, but um, we we were kind of lucky because before we started the book, we wrote a um, very serious blog. And um, in this blog, we had probably when we started the book written about, I don't know, maybe 40 or 50 kind of very um, in-depth blog posts. And they were some of the chapters, right? If we had to... Um, start from the bottom, I would think it would have taken us a little bit longer. But from we started like being serious about it till we have had the book in the hand was roughly a year. So after the book was published, did you have any instances where like, like, like other protection professional came out trying to troubleshoot you saying, no, I disagree with this or this is wrong. And if you did, how did you deal with that? Um, you know, it was surprisingly few that came out with, um, with any uh, criticism or different ways of doing things. And we're pretty, how shall I say, it, uh, either lucky or, or, or whatever in um, the protection industry because, um, you know, there are no set standards, right? We don't have a set standard saying that uh, this is the way you should do it. We all typically lean up against uh, how it's done in the government or how it's done in uh, the Secret Service or whatever, and then we adapt that to, um, to private life. But since there is no um, kind of set standard, it's hard for, um, for anybody to kind of like come out and, and, and second guess what you're saying, or everybody can come out and, and second guess what you're saying. The thing that, that we were pretty lucky with is that we've been doing this for a very long time. And um, most of the things that we talk about in this book has kind of become, um, how should I say, like the guiding principles how you do executive protection, right? We were just the first one who, who kind of sat it down and, and, and did it for corporations. So we didn't get a lot of criticism on, um, on this stuff here. So how does one, do you have to get certified? Do you have to like do some kind of credentialing or can I want to say, can I say I'm Jason Cabinets, I'm going to start an executive protection company. Like how does that work? <laughs> Unfortunately, you actually could. You could. Um, yeah, it, it's actually a little scary because, um, and, and I got some horrible examples, like um, if, it, it, first of all, it varies from state to state. And some states have very strict guidelines. They have a very stringent process on how to get your, um, your license and how to get your um, certification and all of that. And then other states, 
it's harder to um, get approved to run a cleaning business than it is to run a security company. And, yeah. um, or barbershop or nail salon or restaurant. Exactly. And most security companies, um, actually, mo- most executive protection companies actually fall under the same rules as um, uniformed security companies. And uniformed security companies probably have some of the lowest um, certification process and um process for getting getting the licenses in some states right so it's not um it's not hard to start a company unfortunately and once you start the company each of your employees of course has to get a um a license or a guard card or whatever it's called in the different states and that varies from some states it's actually a process where you have to go through x amount of training and in other states you pretty much just have to fill out the paperwork uh, in general from your point of view, how do most police departments look at executive protection agencies? They, they look as a nuisance, you know, a, a value partner, or how is that dynamic? You know, it 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 it, it depends a lot. Um, I would say when I started, most police officers were kind of a very standoffish, and most police departments were very standoffish because 20, 25 years ago, first of all, we weren't um, as good as what we did. I mean, we weren't as squared away. We weren't as good at um, reaching out. We weren't as good as uh, cooperating and stuff like that. Where now, um, I think most police departments are um, either happy with us embracing it or pretty pretty neutral. It's very rare nowadays that I hear police departments that are kind of against the, the security industry because most people these days have figured out it's 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 a partnership. And people got to remember that um, anybody in security is supposed to be a a proactive function. We're there to um, hopefully prevent something from happening where most police activity is kind of a reactionary force, right? That typically um, comes out if something has happened or they come out if they have suspicion of something happened, right? And a lot of times we uh, we use each other a lot. Of course, security use police way more than uh, they, they lean than, than they lean on us, right? Can you talk about something called the excuse me something called the hasty advance? What is that about? <laughs> um, you know, when you go out and do um, uh, executive protection, one of the most important functions that you have is that you go out and do what we call advance work. Advance work is typically. Um, kind of like planning taken to extremes, right? Because you make a plan for how you're going to provide the security for, let's say, a visit to um, downtown uh, Seattle. Then once you've made your plan, you actually go down as an executive protection agent and walk the routes. You know where to park your cars. You know which floor you're going to. You know exactly who you're meeting. You've got the contact information for these people. And um, you kind of do the whole plan ahead of time. So when you come with your VIP, you know exactly um, somebody's meeting me here. We park the car there. They uh, help us get into the first meeting room. Once the boss has uh, done whatever business he has there, we move to this place and to this place. That's typically how the day go. That's what we call the advance work when we go and do it ahead of time. But like everything in life, everything changes. And um, a lot of times we go out and we do the advance work. And in the middle of the day, things change due to uh, circumstances that are out of our hands. And then um, all the advanced work that you have done, you can typically uh, throw out the window because all of a sudden we might not be going to that location. We go to another location. And if we only, uh, if we spend a whole day kind of preparing for this, 
and you only have 10 minutes or 15 minutes or whatever to kind of do a, what I call the hasty advance, then that's kind of what you do there. What do you prioritize? Um, how do you do it? In which order do you do it? And what can you, uh, what maybe uh, you don't have to do because you have to kind of like choose to not do all of it, right? So, you know, of course things happen, but, and maybe this has never happened to you, but in the past, have, how have you dealt with customers? Like you see, like every 10 minutes, something's changing, right? They're always flip-flopping, going back and forth. They're doing this thing, this thing. How, how do you have dealt with that? Um, well, in general, you know, um, security is, like I said, um, all about being preventive, right? And if you have um, a really good plan of how to um, kind of like protect your principal, how to move from A to B, and um, you kind of done most of your work ahead of time, you can kind of mitigate a lot of um, the threats. And, and when we talk about threats, a lot of people think about, um, oh, it's Al-Qaeda or it's uh, snipers or the mafia or, or whatever. Most of the time, um, of course, that, that can't be the case, but it's fairly rare. A lot of times, um, executive protection is also about um, facilitating and make the days better and easier and faster and get more stuff crammed in, right? So a lot of times when, when you do the same things over and over and over again, you figure out how um, your clients want, like the way you do your security, but more importantly, also how you can be more efficient, right? And once you put that aspect into it, you also break up the monotony quite a bit and you kind of can challenge yourself and, and, and get out there and do it again and again and again, right? So I hope that, that kind of answers the question. It, it does. And uh, like, how do you make money? You like charge per hour for a service for your dude? You're, is it like product-based, a combination, retainer uh, fee? It, it depends a little bit. You know, most, uh, there's, there's really two types of um, ways executive protection is sold. One of them is, um, if you can imagine, um, it's principals who need security on an ongoing basis where they have X amount of um, security agents that um, work with them and protect them. So uh, they work on kind of like a uh, ongoing schedule and, and, and they take care of all the events throughout the day and, and stuff like that. That's um, kind of the ongoing, we call them embedded contracts because your team come and work at a, either the, the company or the client's house and, and whatever, and they work with them all the time. And then there is um, what we call the temporary assignments that's typically based on uh, something has happened of one kind or another, and it's uh, shorter terms, right? So you go there maybe for a day, maybe for a couple of weeks, maybe until if there has been some kind of uh, incident until that, that incident has died down. Those are typically the two ways that um, executive protection is, uh, is sold. And it is what you do different based on a person. Like example, if you're doing this for like a, a movie star or or or, or a concert or singer versus uh -huh. a CEO of a Fortune 100 company, or is it basically all the same same things that you do? Uh, I would say it's probably sixty percent the same because the principles are the same, right? The principles that we use are the same, but of course the environment that that the people are in are very very different. A lot of times when you work for a celebrities and uh, singers and um, athletes and stuff like that. It's very, very challenging in a, in a short period of time, right? Because they go out and they're, um, out, uh, they're around a lot of people and they have to go out to promote or uh, to perform or whatever it is that they're doing. Where a lot of times when you work for uh, 
the CEOs and, and the Fortune 500 companies and whatever. It's more kind of like an ongoing thing, right? It's not as uh, as peak um, because they don't kind of like do the same thing. They might go to concerts and stuff like that, but then they go uh, as a guest and it's very different than, uh, than, than actually being on stage, right? But the principles of how, of how we protect is the same. If that makes sense. It does. So people are like, let's say that limelight on them, so to speak, in the pub is a little bit harder to take care of them, so to speak. Yeah, you know, there's a lot more um, eyes on, you know. And, um, you know, if you have a, I don't know, a couple of hundred fans waiting outside and stuff like that, it, it is very, very challenging working through that whole environment. And then that's kind of the image a lot of people see for uh, bodyguards and executive protection and, and whatever, because that's what you see on the uh, TMC and on TV and, and stuff like that, where most of the work that we actually do takes place outside of the, the limelight. And especially when you work for the, the bigger corporations, they have other challenges like international travel, um, very, very busy days and uh, always something happening. And, um, you know, not all companies have, um, the best reputation, there are people that are getting fired, there are a lot of stuff, right? So I would say um, you can't really, I, I, I think both uh, the celebrity world and the corporate world, the risk is kind of the same, but it's just different faces. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's an interesting twist between the two, that's for sure. And in the celebrity world, like you're talking, if someone has 200 fans going to meet them, like, like there's no way to tell if one person like a stalker or out to get him right, unless of course they maybe wrote some letters of the right. Mm -hmm. But but in, in your experience, do like do stalkers do they actually like you know like send letters in or make yourself known like that to give you a heads up? Or is that pretty much like you don't know until they actually try uh, to do something? Well, you know, typically uh, when you mention stalkers, it's a process, right? That um, starts with some kind of a contact, and then it goes on for a while, and. Um, one of the things that both in the celebrity world, but also, believe it or not, in, uh, in the corporate world, um, there's just as many stalkers or pursuers, or um, we call them either POIs or uh, BOLOs, POIs as uh, people of interest, or BOLOs as be on the lookout. Um, and it's typically a process, right? And if you're a good executive protection agent, you pick this up, you work with the EAs, you work with the people who handle the mail and stuff like that, and you, you pick it up early and you kind of figure out, is this um, kind of a fan? Is it a fan that's kind of like misunderstood a little bit or has this threatening nature? If it has a threatening nature, is this something that's uh, realistic? Is it somebody who um, had the means and potentially... Um, could do something about what he or she is threatening to do. And you slowly try to figure out uh, who is this person. Maybe uh, you can figure out uh, who they are, find a picture of them or whatever. So you know who you're looking for, but a lot of times you don't know. And then you just know that maybe you've had a uh, pursuer or a stalker who's talking about an incident on, on this and this day or whatever. And then you have to build your security plan accordingly, right? Yeah, no, I can't think of an example, but you always hear the news, you know, about, you know, people going to court, you know, for harassing people, stalking them, you know, you know celebrities like the, what's it called, the, the um, cease and exist orders, you know, stay away, sit uh -huh. around on the street, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's the thing, right? And if, um, if you're able to get to there, well, then the people who are stalking them is actually committing um, some kind of a crime, right? And you can get the police involved, right? But um, a lot of times you haven't gotten through there, right? And, and, and you know, when, when you go out, you really separate 
um, uh, between two different things, right? There is um, the people who seize the opportunity, and um, those are a lot of times way more um, harder to deal with than people who have made some kind of a plan, right? Because if we have somebody who's a stalker or a potential pursuer that says, hey, at uh, the concert in, um, let's say, Seattle, I am going to make contact with you. Okay, well, then we know that something will happen. Maybe we drive in underground, go into a secure elevator, go directly into the green room, from the green room directly on stage. On stage, we have a guy on each side of the stage. There's a fence in front with concert security. It's relatively secure. We can take uh, the principal out the same way and stuff like that. It totally sucks that you have to do it like that, but you can keep the person um, secure. What's really hard is if there is somebody who seizes the moment that we don't know about, right? Because then it can pretty much be anybody who um, recognizes this person and wants to pursue for an autograph or think this person is really, really annoying. A lot of times what we see... um, if we take people to sports games, is that uh, there's a lot of emotions in the fans. And, um, you know, if you go to a football game uh, somewhere, there is uh, there has been some layoffs or whatever. Maybe the owner has been involved or it's the owner from the other teams and stuff like that. And all of a sudden people are yelling or trying to make contact or whatever, right? And you weren't prepared for that because you didn't, you didn't really have any warnings, right? So, so those those two things can be really, really hard to separate, and uh, definitely something you have to be aware of on both sides. Yeah, I remember a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a month. I, don't, I have no track of time anymore. When Dave Chappelle was doing some concert, I think the Hollywood Bowl, and some dude jumped on the stage, and it ended up being the guy was kind of you know like kind of deranged and kind of had trouble, you know, mental problems. But like, he just jumped up there, like, like what, like it's almost like security wasn't even there. I'm sure they were there, you know. But it's like he just like it happened so quickly, right? Oh yeah. No, and that, that's one of the problems that you have, right? Because um, this is by no means easy because you got to remember that most people who hire us has some kind of a public profile. And in this public profile, you still want to appear approachable. You, of course, don't want to send a signal that, that you're scared. And maybe you don't even know something is uh, supposed to kick off or whatever. So if you think about it, if Dave Chappelle in that incident has one or two guys. They would typically be placed um, either on the side of the stage or down in the pit in front of the stage, or at least one of them, and then one up in the backstage area. But if this guy decides to jump the fence from the other side, you'll always be kind of a couple of steps behind before you get there. So as an EP agent, you've got to rely on uh, concept security. You've got to rely a lot about uh, on, on physical security, like uh, barriers and fences and stuff like that. Else, it's impossible for you to uh, secure the principal completely. So, so this guy who you know, you know jumped on on the stage for Dave Chappelle afterwards, he first got his ass kicked in, right? He got beat up pretty bad. So, my question is for you: is like, like for your people, suppose I had to put hands on someone and and, and like had to you know kind of you know, I don't want to say beat somebody up, but like be rough some someone. Can that person then like? file charges against you for assault or how does that work well that's that's always the next problem that people have right because um when you are a security agent you don't have like uh, special police powers or whatever you're here to um kind of like protect your principal and protect yourself and if you are a good security agent what you do is you take your principal and you get away from the danger put yourself in between and get the principal out of there because typically the attacker 
is worried about the principle. It's not our job by any mean to rough anybody up or uh, use excessive amount of force or anything like that, right? And I think it's very, very rare. I read somewhere that uh, most of the roughing up happens in the fall and when concert security kind of intervened and stuff like that, right? And a lot of times there's a lot of people that kind of like want to help out. And it's actually a little bit of an incident or an, uh, a little bit of an issue sometimes. Because if I'm hired to work for a principal who says, hey, we want, if something happens, you've got to make it look good. We don't want extra publicity out of it and stuff like that. And you might have that under control. But if 10 other security people that don't work for you tries to help you out or whatever, it doesn't look as pretty as, as you wanted it to do, right? And it's not always your jurisdiction because if you're only with the client, but you're at the Hollywood ball, there's probably Hollywood ball security. Then there's probably front stage security. And um, all these different security companies have different rules and different um, kind of like ways to engage. And um, yes, yeah, so, so you don't always know. And, and, and I don't know who roughed up this guy, but nobody should do that. At the end of the day, it's just like being arrested for a crime. You have to use the force that is uh, necessary, but we're not in any way judges or whatever. So we can be sued exactly like, like everybody else. Yeah, I'm thinking probably some of Dave Chappelle's friends probably jumped in. They got a few licks in, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and you got to remember, a lot of times we're actually at really high risk at this because um, most of the people that we work for have pretty high profiles and um, also uh, pretty wealthy. And in some states, there are lawyers that uh, reach out to people and say, hey, did security lay hand on you or what happened or whatever to kind of see if they can sue the principals? Not so much the security agents, because typically uh, we, we fall in the middle. But if, if there is an opening for a sue on the principal, that that happens, unfortunately. So, so Chris, on your website, you have a lot of great courses that you give or provide. Can you like, maybe cover a couple of them? Yeah. You know, um, my new startup here the last uh, two years has been something that I call EP Access. And um, what they are is um, during COVID, when we all were kind of sitting at home and I was kind of in between jobs and stuff like that, I realized that I've been doing this for almost 30 years all over the world. And um, I've had a lot of amazing people that has worked for me and some has retired and some are still there in different capacities and stuff like that. But I've gotten a ton of uh, knowledge and know-how and um, I would love to share that, right? So I started, it, it actually started out with me um, doing some online training for um, for a couple of people that, that we couldn't uh, be with because of COVID. And then I figured out, hey, hey, this works. It doesn't totally uh, kind of like uh, substitute physical training, but it's a, a supplement to the physical training that we always used to do. And um, that's kind of what we're doing now. And we have um, courses in, uh, believe it or not, online courses in security driving, we have online courses in uh, the medical stuff that we do. We have online courses. Uh, we just um, loaded up a new course with um, what we call tactical communication, but it's really conflict de-escalation, how to talk to people so they kind of calm down instead of uh, kind of uh, go crazy, which is super important. We have uh, courses in soft skills, advanced work, and um, we're constantly working on new courses that we're going to put up there. So Christian, you bring up a good point. Can you talk about the importance of de-escalation? I, I think a lot of police departments get criticized. I think right before, right, right if you sow 
for always, you know, upping the the, the ante, so to speak, instead of disescalating items. Can you talk about the points of that? Yeah, you know, it's it, it, it's one of those things where um, before I started in executive protection, I worked as a uh, nightclub security or a bouncer back home in uh, in Europe. And um, you figure out pretty quickly when you're uh, a nightclub security that there's always somebody bigger and stronger than you. And you don't really want to get into any fights with anybody because one, it's no, no fun when you've done it a few times. You have the chances of getting your ass kicked or, or even worse. But again, also be sued or have problems with the police or whatever. So if you can avoid trouble, that's by far the best way to do any security. And... Um, you know, some people have made it almost an art form to talk to other people and de-escalate conflicts and stuff like that. And um, it's one of those things that's very, very useful for executive protection agents because we um, we like to avoid um, trouble and we like to avoid confrontations. But a lot of times we also have to rely on ourselves and our uh, skills to um, kind of get what we want, if that makes sense, right? Because let's say that um, we would love to cut across the field in halftime of something to avoid having to go through all the people or whatever. You might have to argue with uh, the local chief of security or venue security or, or whatever, right? And then you have to be able to argue your case. And the one thing you cannot do is you cannot uh, come up to a screaming match or whatever because we're always guests at somebody's house and we're always representing our clients. So it's very important that whatever we do when we um, solve conflicts or whatever, we do it in a very, very nice way, right? And that's the whole thing about conflict de-escalation is uh, if we can tone it down and get what we want, we already want, in my opinion, at least. So for, for how does interest work for you? I have to imagine your interest terms are, are kind of high because you got a couple of liability of different things. How does that work for you? Uh, sorry, I didn't. The, 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 the insurance, how does that work? I have to imagine the premiums are pretty high. Yeah, they are. I mean, um, like anything in, in uh, the insurance world, once you uh, have done what you're doing for a while and they see it's not um, as risk uh, heavy as most people think in the beginning, it becomes a little bit more manageable. But insurance is, is a big thing, and especially um, for the protective details that use armed agents. Um, the risk is, of course, uh, high, and insurance rate goes up and stuff like that. But you can mitigate a lot of it with good training and good SOPs and good procedures and, and stuff like that, right? And it's built in to uh, the service already from the beginning if, if you're good at what you do, right? So um, it, it, it's not easy, but, but it's doable. So, Christian, what do you think most people get wrong about your, about your industry? <laughs> I think people get a lot of things wrong. I think um, if you look at most uh, people that think about executive protection and bodyguards, they think about two things. They either think about um, the big guys with the sunglasses that are pushing people out of the way that we saw in the older days in um, kind of like the celebrity world, or they think about Secret Service who is always in a suit look like a million bucks with their sunglasses and their earpieces and they run next to the president's car and whatever. And um, that's none of these two are, are correct for what we do, right? I think that's one of the biggest um, kind of misunderstandings. The other misunderstanding that everybody has about being an executive protection agent is that it's a very action kind of uh, field because, oh, you know, these guys probably 
fly around the world with their guns, solving problems, saving the world, like the hitman's uh, bodyguard or whatever. And that's so far from the truth as it can be, right? I have to imagine somebody... you all bored quite a bit of time. Oh, I mean, um, it, it's really funny because, you know, a lot of people who also come into this industry think it's like that. And that's why they kind of are drawn to this industry. So it's kind of a, a big wake up call for them when they figure out that uh, most of the time we actually made a career out of waiting for other people. Right. Because we sit outside doors and wait a lot. We uh, yeah, we travel a lot and you're always on the go. But that comes with good things and definitely bad things. And um yeah, so so the biggest misconceptions is probably that it's a very very action heavy kind of a profession, and it's definitely not the secret service, and it's definitely not um, the big guys pushing people out of the way with no rules and half starting fights and uh, helping the clients do all kinds of crazy stuff. Hey, Chris, I want to change the subject a minute. So you you grew up in Denmark, correct? Uh huh. And how old were you when you came to the United States? I was 21 when I came the first time. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess most people probably don't know where Denmark is or anything about Denmark. Can you give uh -huh. us like a quick dummies one-on-one course about growing up in Denmark and you know, what's it like there? Sure. Denmark is a uh, very small country in the northern part of Europe. If um, you kind of have an overview of Europe in your mind, we're on top of Germany, below Norway and Sweden. And uh, there's only about 5 million Danish people in the world. So it's um, it's a fairly small country. It's very um, how should I say developed. We uh, we all go to school for about ten years as a minimum. Most people speak uh, Danish, English, and maybe even um, a third language, which is typically either French or German. Um, we have a um, kind of like very structured uh, economy and politics and stuff like that because we're uh, we're so small. Right. And um, we're very civilized. Most um, most people probably know Denmark from either uh, Hans Christian Andersen, uh, soccer, the story of the, the original story of the Little Mermaid, soccer or home of the Vikings, like the original Vikings. Yes. That's kind of what we're most uh, famous for, I would say. So if someone's going to take a trip to Denmark, what would you say? Like maybe a few things that you definitely have to see if they go over there. Um, you know, most people that come to Denmark flies into Copenhagen and Copenhagen is a really cool city in the summertime because it's, um, first of all, one of the old capitals of, um, Europe. So there's a lot of old buildings and most of the old buildings are actually, um, still being used. Um, they have, they still look the same on the outside. You can only update them on the inside. So there's a lot of really, really cool, um, like walking streets with little cafes and, little bars and, and stuff like that. And um, Copenhagen was founded in the early nine, 900s. So it's it's a really, really old city where it's built, built on top many times. So some of the houses you walk by can be from like the 14th, 1500s, um, that century. And um, it was an old military city. So the old like naval quarters and stuff like that is still there and people people live in it. So that that's a really, really cool thing to see. Um, I think if you want to get a little bit more into to the history part, about 30 miles south, there's a city called uh, Roskilde, which has, um, I'm told, uh, the best Viking ship museum in the world and uh, museums about the Vikings. There's a, a really, really awesome church where our kings and, and queens uh, have been buried. 
for years and years and years. If you want to do something that's a little bit more high tech, we also have one of the engineering marvels, which is the bridge to Sweden, which I think is almost 20 miles long. And um, it has a, an artificial island and it's over the water, under the water, and you can do it either by car, by train and stuff like that. So those are some of the things that are really easy to see if you fly into to Copenhagen. How, how often do you go back? You know, I used to go back once a year um, before pandemic to um, to see my family and stuff like that. But it's been a, a while and um, it's almost easier now to bring my family over here, you know, because when I go home, I, of course, go back home to them. But if they come over here, they're on vacation when they come over here. And, you know, there's always a lot, of, lot to see in the U.S. So it, it has more been them coming over here the last couple of years than, than me going back home. But Christian, um, you, you speak English, German, Danish, Norwegian, Swedish, like all these languages, do you just, do you just pick them naturally? You have to school for them or like, are you just like a language savant, so to speak? Well, there's, there's a little bit of um, kind of like logic to it, though, because if, if you speak Danish, Norwegian and uh, Swedish is two different languages on the same base, right? It's a little bit more than a different dialect, but it's still kind of those three languages are so closely related. So it's kind of like if you have somebody from Seattle speaking to somebody from Northern Canada, um, just with a little bit more, maybe different words. And that's the three of the languages, right? Then I speak Danish, which is kind of, of course, my, my regular language. And then uh, in school, we learned to speak English and um, I grew up in the southern part of Denmark, which is a couple of islands that are closer to German, Germany. So for us, it was natural to speak German than um, choosing French or any of the other languages. And me growing up, we watched a lot of German television. And that's typically what, what helps you get good at, uh, at speaking these languages. And, and my English is obviously from my travels and living here in the U.S. and stuff like that. But school gave me a really good... Uh, background in languages. So how do you keep like, how do you make sure your language skills are good? You know, in America, everyone speaks English, no one's really speaking Danish or German. Like how do you no. make sure you don't lose, you know, your language skills? It's, it's very, very hard, you know? And um, every time I, uh, I've traveled in Europe and spent some time in, in Germany, I always come in with this uh, false perception that I can speak with everybody and I can remember everything. It typically takes me a couple of days to um, to get back in it. And I can feel every time I get back, I get rustier and rustier. It's very hard to um, to keep remembering it because you don't use it enough, right? And then there is the other thing that a lot of people forget when you go to Northern Europe. That is that everybody speaks English and everybody wants to practice their English. So if you try to speak German to a lot of German people, they will automatically be nice and switch over to English because they can hear that you speak English better than you speak German, right? Mm -hmm. So it's very, very hard for you to keep uh, these languages up when you go, go back. And, you know, probably a couple of years from now, it would be lying to say that I speak these, these uh, languages uh, uh, 100%. Now, can you rewrite and uh, speak all these languages? I, I can make myself understandable. Okay. Let's put it that way. And I can understand what they're saying. It's always easier to understand what other people say in foreign languages than it is to, um, to talk to them, I think. So, Christian, how, how did you go back when you first started? 
what got you interested in this industry and how did you even get started in this industry? Well, you know, it's actually a, a little bit of a different story. Like I said earlier, I was working as a uh, nightclub security uh, or a bouncer. And um, I had worked a little bit with some concert promoters and um, some different concert security and stuff like that. And one night I was working, these young kids come in and ask me if, um, if I wanted to move with them to the U.S. because they have gotten a uh, recording deal in Los Angeles and they needed a security agent or a security, they called it back then, we called it a bodyguard. They needed a bodyguard and a driver to kind of help them get around. And, um, you know, when you stand there on a Friday night, everybody's drunk and everybody tells you stories. So, of course, you go, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll do that. And I didn't really think much of it. But on Monday, their uh, manager actually called me and said, hey, this is uh, serious. If, if you want to do this, um, we're leaving in, in two weeks. And um, I talked to my uh, my now uh, ex-wife about it. And uh, she was actually the one who pushed me and said, hey, why don't you go for it and see what it is and try it out. And if it's fun, I'm going to come over and join you for a while and we can uh, live in America and see how it goes. We can always come back home. So I kind of um, went over and it turned out that these young kids had a um, production deal with a bunch of different uh, artists in LA, primarily uh, hip hop and rap artists that uh, they were producing. So um, it was kind of like from Little Denmark straight into uh, LA. Los Angeles. There yeah. had, to be a, it had to be a culture shock, I'm guessing. Oh, it was it was like like day and night. I mean, most people haven't even seen most English people haven't even seen that many people as live in LA, right? Because all of Denmark, like I said, is five million people. So that is less than all of LA proper, right? And um, these young kids were producing uh, all these um, rap and hip hop acts. And this was back when uh, rap music really took off in America. So it was acts like um, uh, NWA and Ice Cube and all of these gangster rappers. And um, these 19 to 21 year old Danish kids were, were sitting there producing them while um, yeah, it, it was almost surreal sometimes, right? Because it was a totally different world. So you got to see a lot of historical hip hop stuff in the beginning then. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we met most of, um, most of the rappers from that area or from that era. So that was, that was kind of fun and interesting. And back then, I, I really dig the music. So, so that was fun too. But I guess you, you kind of have to when you work in it every day, right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. So another thing on your website, you have a, you have some blogs. I want to go over two. First one, what you talk about is um, one blog is how to write a corporate executive protection strategy. Uh huh. Can you talk about the, the details of that? Yeah. You know, um, one of the things that uh, when we wrote the first book that we really wanted to get out there is that, um, Security is this weird kind of beast because, you know, a lot of people come from uh, uh, law enforcement or from the military or from a government agency. And then they come in and work in a corporation. And when they come to this corporation, everybody kind of have an idea of how security should work. And um, that's all good. Right. But let's say that. Um, you got hired into Corporation X and you have an idea of how 
security should work. You um, should kind of like sit down and figure it out and, and do a strategy for it. Just like people do a strategy for developing uh, software or developing services and, and whatever. But in security, we're typically more doers than we're thinkers, right? So one of the things we saw a lot was that people would um, hire executive protection agents and they hadn't really thought through a lot of times, how many agents do we need? How are we going to run our coverage? Where do we separate the coverage? Do we protect the CEO 24-7? Do we only protect him when he's at work? If we protect him 24-7, what about his family? Um, how do we do that? What about his travel? If we protect the CEO, do we also need to uh, protect the number two, the number three? Is that something we want to do later? Is it something that we want to do now, right? So what we kind of came up with was a way for us to um, encourage people to write a strategy, just like you write a strategy for everything else, but kind of fit it for executive protection. And I know from uh, a lot of people who have used the book that it's been, uh, it's been very, very helpful. And we give an example, and I give an example on the blog, but there's many different ways to do this, right? But for me, it's more thinking a little bit about more about it than just, just going into now, which a lot of people used to do in the past. So next blog I'm going to talk about is uh, you did a blog called Networking Tips for Executive Protection Professionals. Let's talk uh -huh. about that and the points like for everyone is if networking is important, like why is it so important for, for your industry? Uh, it's super important for the executive protection industry because um, typically we, uh, we always try to um, facilitate the best way for our principles, right? So let's say that our principal is coming because he's on the board of another company, right? It's important that we network with the security agents and the executive protection agents over there. So we know who to call when we come with our clients. If um, they come with their boss to our campus, they know who to call. And um, it's, 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 it's kind of a good thing, but for some reason, again, in the security industry, and I think it kind of goes down to who the security industry attracts as people. A lot of us are not um, extrovert, kind of like people, uh, persons that like to go out and mingle and kind of network and stuff like that. A lot of business people that has been in business for a long time understand that their network is their net worth, right? And a lot of people understand that um, a lot of business come from people that they know and the more they can go out there and network, the easier it is for them to um, find funding or find projects or whatever. In security, especially in executive protection, we typically have an idea of being the other way around, right? Everything our bosses do, we want to keep a secret because it's part of what we do. Um, we don't really want to talk about it because we shouldn't. A lot of people try to... Uh, kind of uh, like figure out who are all these celebrities and stuff like that. So everything we do is always kind of like bound in secrecy or extreme secrecy. So a lot of people forget to go out and, and do their networking, right? And once you work in this industry, if you want to grow and get a better job, a different job and, and stuff like that, you really need to do the networking because also a lot of people don't realize that executive protection is very... Uh, personalized with the agents, meaning that no matter how good you are, you typically have a lifespan on each team. And if you want to go from your own team to another team when that lifespan is up, 
it's very important that you know the other people in the business so you can get a job, right? And a lot of times, maybe not as much now when the executive protection industry has become as big as it is now, but before it was very hard to find all these different teams, right? Because you can't just call, uh, let's say, Starbucks and ask for Starbucks uh, executive protection team. That will probably never get you through there. You would have to figure out who are the people that I need to talk to and stuff like that. And the best way to do that is through uh, through networking. And you'll actually be surprised. A lot of people who have taken uh, our courses in this and wrote this blog and stuff like that, they come back and tell me how eye-opening some of these things are. And then I talk to other people who are in business and, and kind of understand networking and they're kind of like, yeah, this is the backbone of what we do, right? So it's, it's kind of interesting. So Christian, from your point of view, what, are, what, what kind of characteristics or values make up a successful protection person? Uh, that's, that's always hard. And it's one of the things that we always try to analyze and figure out. But I think... Um, you know, most people would think that um, I would say, like, you have to be really good at shooting and fighting and medical stuff and all of that. But but you can learn that. Those are kind of like the hard skills that, that people can learn. What I think is important is that um, you're flexible and positive and you're a self-starter and a self-motivator because a lot of times um, you kind of have to solve your own problems and you have to figure out how you do that yourself because not a lot of people are there to help you with it. So I think those are important. I think it's very important that um, you have a professional kind of demeanor and a positive attitude because a lot of times um, there's also this misunderstanding, you know, that people who have a lot of money and people who need executive protection, they, um, they're not as busy as other people which is probably as far from the truth as it can be, right? Most of the people we work for work 14 to 18 hour days every day. You're always on the go. So it can be sometimes a very, very uh, hard and lonely job to always be on the road as, as a protection agent. So it's very important that you can pick yourself up, be positive, get your work done, um, be a self-starter, be a self-motivator. So I think, I think those are probably the most important uh, kind of attributes that people need to have. How does this work? I like, suppose you're protecting someone and they're going to fly from Seattle to, we'll say, Los Angeles. Like, uh -huh. do you all, like, you know, schedule the flights for them, the transportation? Like, how much detail goes into that? Well, there's a lot of details in this and it varies a lot from client to client. You know, some of the, the biggest clients in the world who has um, some of the biggest companies or made some of the biggest fortunes or whatever, they have a, a lot of staff that's involved in this and you're more focused on just the protection. But within the pr protection, you typically own the ground transportation. So cars and drivers, um, security around the principal, uh, taking the principal from A to B, getting him onto the flight. Then you kind of hand on to, off to the flight crew. Either you are with the principal on the flight or you have another team who's ready to um, receive you when you get on the ground. Here, if the example here was somebody's flying to Seattle, obviously when the plane lands, there's somebody there who has managed to have one or two cars, whatever is necessary. There's probably an agent who's already flown down there who does the advance work, meaning that they know where we're going. Uh, they've done all the stuff we talked about in the beginning. 
And then there would typically be one agent that has flown with, with the client down there, right? So that's typically what we take care of. But you know, some of the smaller details, agents are involved in, in everything from booking flights to dinner reservations till, uh, I don't know, getting um, coffee in the morning or finding the right meeting spots to uh, choosing venues and, and stuff like that. And it also depends. Here we've talked a lot about uh, people who work for uh, CEOs and, and people who work for, for corporations. There's a lot of executive protection agents that also work for private families, right? And if you work for the private families, the responsibilities and then how you integrate it is a lot different than, than from corporations. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like someone asked one of your people, hey, go give me a cup of coffee. What, what, do you all say, hey, no, no, that's not what we're here for. But it seems like you just tell you best to take, take care of them uh, as, as you, you can. Know, you know, it's very different because... Um, for me and the people that work for me and the stuff I've been involved in, I always believe that um, I've, I've always worked under these three guiding process uh, principles that was called safe, happy, and productive, right? And um, in my world, we're there to keep the clients safe by far, but we only get to do that if we also keep them happy, right? Because it is annoying to have a security team around you all the time. So it's about finding use of your time, right? So if the client were to say to me, hey, go get me a coffee. If I had to leave the client, I would probably send one of the drivers or I would ask the hotel concierge or whoever my contact person is right then and there. If it's something I could grab outside, let's say in the hallway and get him the coffee, I'm not too... Um, I'm not too high on my horse to grab him that coffee and, and give it to him. If it's something that, that could be facilitated relatively easy, I would do it. It also depends on, on where is the client when he asks me this. If he's in the corporation and we're in a secure building and whatever, maybe. If we're um, kind of out and about and out in public and, and whatever, I would have a hard time leaving his side and justifying it, right? But then again, you mentioned coffee, but if, for instance, if it was medication that we didn't have, it's different than coffee, right? So it's very important that you as an operator can kind of distinguish these things and figure out what should I do and what shouldn't I do. So, no, of course, you're going to be a professor at all times, but how do you deal with that? Like if you have one, one you know, client, like they're really nice, charismatic, everyone gets along with them, they treat you nicely respect. Another client, like kind of like, you know, just say the other person asshole, right? They don't treat you right. Of course, you would prefer to do the same service, but how do you how do you deal with those two scenarios? You know, it's it, it's it's very funny because it's one of the questions I get a lot, and um, believe it or not, sometimes it's actually easier to work for the clients who's not too approachable because you don't have to remind yourself all the time why you're there, right? If a client is, I hate the word asshole because to be honest. I've met a lot of clients who's very guarded and I met a lot of uh, clients who is very uh, kind of like shut off for other people and stuff like that. But in my experience, it mostly comes from them being who they are and getting to this level and stuff like that. And once you work with them for a while, they open up and of course they all have different personalities. Some are very jolly and some of them are not, not that outspoken and whatever, but it's actually very, very rare that we've had clients that, that were direct assholes. But I hear from a lot of other teams that <laughs> we've been super lucky. So 
On the Astros side, I, I, I don't have that much experience with it, except from, I think, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of EP agents does is they think that um, we're there to be the client's friends, which is absolutely not true. We're there to make them safe, happy, and productive, right? And if the client is overly nice to you, you have to figure out not to be so overly nice the other way that you kind of get drawn into the family or drawn too far into the entourage and whatever, because eventually somebody's going to turn around and say, hey, why are you here? Why are you not out in the perimeter kind of guarding and, and, and doing your job, right? And, you know, a lot of these people, like you said, are very, very charismatic. They're... Um, kind of owning the world. They're on TV all the time. When you go home and be with your family and you go to like the neighbor's house and if they know what you do, people sometimes ask you questions about who you work for and people think it's exciting. So it's very, very easy for especially younger agents to get drawn into this world and, and, and think that it's about them, but it's never about them. It's always about the clients, right? And if uh, you make the mistake of thinking it's about you and get drawn too far into the client's inner circle or private life or whatever, sometimes it's very hard for you to keep, um, to, to uh, stay on that team, right? Because once either the, somebody in the entourage or the client or whatever don't like having you that close anymore, you easily become way more annoying, right? So it's one of the things that we always train and educate the younger agents in a lot is not becoming what we call the favorite, and in the book, we actually have a whole section about how you avoid um, what we call the favorite syndrome. So, Christian, back to the example of so, so someone flying from Seattle, Los Angeles. Is it safe to assume most of those people have their own private jet planes? Because I'm guessing most of them aren't, aren't flying like, like, like regular people on, like, in coach or on a regular plane, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it depends a lot. And typically... Um, you know, we fall under the same rules as most other people in corporate travel. Of course, if we fly with the boss himself, uh, we typically go on, on the private plane or um, if they, for some reason, fly first class or whatever, we would have one guy that was close to, to the principal either under the plane or, or in first class. But everybody else would follow the same travel rules and regulations as everybody else that works for that corporation, right? And they typically have rules that say, any flight over, I don't know, three hours or whatever, you can fly uh, economy plus. And if it's anything over uh, overseas or a day or whatever, you might justify you flying um, business class. And we, we typically just uh, go with the same rules as them. And if you're under principal's plane, you uh, typically sit up front, either in the jump seat up by the pilots or you have a designated seat that's a little bit out of the way, right? And you also as yourself want to be out of the way a little bit so you don't automatically get drawn into conversations and you can't hear kind of um, confidential information that might be spoken about on the plane and stuff like that. You kind of, It's kind of an art form to stay out of all the stuff you don't need to know about. How does this work? I might be saying this wrong, but I'm presuming you do this travel, you take weapons with you, and of course the weapons go under the plane. But how do you like, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of checking your weapons in, people have seen those weapons, like how do you like navigate through that? It's, it's a nightmare. <laughs> and typically what we do is if, um, if it is an armed detail and we have an agent who is um, doing the advance work, he would typically uh, bring the weapons down. And of course you need to have um, 
your CCWs and you need to have whatever permits you need in each different state. And um, then you would have the, the weapons go ahead because if you follow the rules, the guns has to be checked and in separate boxes and all of that stuff, no matter where you fly, right? And that'll slow everybody down. So typically we don't take any, uh, if we are with the principal, you typically don't take your weapons on the plane unless you have some special credentials for that. I believe um, there's some former law enforcement agents and some former government agencies and stuff like that that issues permits so some people can travel with their weapons on the plane, but I've never done it since I don't have one of those. So I don't know exactly how that works. Can you take weapons on private planes? Um, that's a good question, actually. I, I can't remember what the rules and the regulations are, but I know that as soon as you take weapons outside of the U.S., it becomes a major issue. And you typically don't want to do that on the private planes because a lot of times when you land privately somewhere, you don't get like the big uh, customs kind of like uh, clearance and all of that. Typically, they just come and look at your passport and then you take off to the first destination. So if you had to clear guns or clear weapons or whatever, it will take some time, right? So we always uh, advocated that if we need weapons, either we get local people that are armed so we don't have to deal with uh, moving weapons around. And if we can't get local people that are armed, we uh, would send them with the advanced guy so he would have some time to uh, get all this prepared before the client shows up. Yeah, it seems like a logistical nightmare. It is. It is. So, Christian, of course, you know, you know what you do, you have to be confidential. A lot of confidential. So, do you all like sign NDAs with the people uh-huh. you serve, or how does that work? Well, you know, if, if <laughs> you, you'll actually be surprised because... Um, we work for multiple clients and multiple corporations where um, we are the ones who drive the NDAs and stuff like that. But the way that it typically works is that the company and um, the security company has like a master service agreement that has NDAs and all that built into it. And then the security company on top of that have an NDA with each of their uh, employees. And then when they start working for the clients, they sign an NDA with the client as well, right? That, that's the way it should be. Unfortunately, there's been so many people over the years that have dropped all kinds of weird books with their memoirs and, and stuff like that, where they talk about the clients. And I actually think it's one of those things that are very bad for the business that we live in. And it's something that we have always done everything we can to kind of avoid by NDAing people and kind of educating them about why this is a, a bad idea. And then we have it now with social media as well. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing social media. There's nothing wrong with uh, having an active social media profile and all of that stuff. But you cannot talk about your clients or the clients whereabout or what you do and, and whatever. So you develop guidelines for how to how to avoid this, but still letting your agents um, do some kind of social media. How does this work? You have an NDA, NDA with the client, and let's suppose this client does something illegal. I mean, like something not only illegal, like really, really, really bad, right? Like, like, uh-huh. like no, newsworthy bad. You know, how do y'all deal with that? You just like brush it aside. You report it to the police. What's the dy- dynamics on that? Um, you know, we, um, we 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 try to monitor it on an ongoing basis, and you know, typically it's not something that starts overnight. 
And one of the things that um, is kind of like your, uh, in my opinion, duty and obligation when you run a security company is have a really good dialogue with your employees of stuff like this, right? Because typically, um, if you have a bunch of people that work for you, you don't always know until somebody either tells you or you see it in the media or whatever. But if you do, we kind of like strike on it as soon as we can. And when I say strike on it, it's, it's, it's not always striking with thunder and force and whatever, but actually uh, try first to educate them on why this is a bad idea. And if it's somebody who got let go, who holds a grudge or whatever, it can always be a little bit uh, harder. And then, of course, you have to move in with, uh, with lawyers and, and the whole thing to kind of get them to, to not do that. So let's say, like, um, how does this work? Let's suppose you have a client, and let's say they're doing, you know, illegal drugs with, the, with under, under, underage minors, right? Can the police then come and say, you know, you're a witness or, you know, you're responsible because you were there too? Or how does that work? You know, that's, that's a really good question. And um, in the 30 years of me been doing this, we've been asked maybe five times by, um, by the authorities of what has gone on. And um, it has never really been like, I know it's always, people always think, oh, they do drugs and they do all of these things based on the things that we see in the media. But we've actually never had anybody who has um, kind of come from the police or from the authorities and, and whatever asked us these questions. But it's also, again, what I said earlier on, right? If your agents are really, really good and you run a really good company, you have a program where you teach them not to get too close, right? And most of the clients that we work for, if they were to do stuff that we shouldn't know about, they would do it when they're in the hotel room or when they are talking about secret information and whatever, and we wait outside, right? Because what typically happens when you uh, kind of uh, escort your client from A to B, is that at the end of the day, you escort them to the hotel room or to the hotel suite. And then you set up a perimeter, which can be outside the suite. Maybe they have the whole hallway. So it's down by the elevators of the hallway. And then what goes on in there is typically not our problem unless we're caught by the client, right? So a lot of stuff could easily have happened that we've never seen. I don't think it has, but um, I, I wouldn't know, but the few times where we've been caught by the authorities or whatever, it's typically um, they reach out to the company to figure out who was with this and this client and will we protect them in these and these days because they've gotten a complaint about this and this. And then we explain and say, hey, we wouldn't know if this cargo was on the plane or whatever because we don't handle the flight manifests, for instance. Uh, somebody else does, right? So. That's 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 the few incidences that I've seen over the years. Okay, so very few few then. That's just great. So Christian, can you tell us about your own entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, I can do that. You know, I um, went to uh, school like everybody else, but um, I barely finished uh, high school back in Denmark. Then um, started working, but at the side of working, I had a small business that. Um, did some uh, concerts and uh, some parties. I worked a little bit in the music industry myself as a, believe it or not, a, a DJ. And it was very small entrepreneurial stuff. But um, 
It brought me enough that I got into the security business. I worked as a uh, bouncer and actually had no real aspiration of, of building big companies or whatever. But I was lucky enough to come to the U.S. learn kind of the skills of uh, being a bodyguard and executive protection. So when I moved back to Denmark, after I have done it for a few years in the U.S., I realized that, um, and this is back in the mid-90s, late-90s, that there was no private security companies in Copenhagen that had uh, focused on bodyguards and executive protection. So I started uh, my own company to do that because none of the big security companies back then was looking for people with that skill set. They were looking for traditional uniform guards and stuff like that. So I started my own company, which were called West Security. And um, I grew that from, I don't know, from, I think we were about two and a half million dollars when, um, when we sold that company to um, what is now Securitas, which were one of the big Danish security companies that kind of grew and became big in, in all of Europe. I worked in Securitas as their uh, special security uh, consultant and ran their uh, executive protection and stuff like that for about three years. Then um, my contract was up and I decided to start uh, AS Solution, which were the second company. And um, that took me then from, uh, yeah, from starting up till I sold it in 2017. And um, we had at that point about $35 million in, in turnover and uh, say about 400 employees. And we worked all over the world. I stayed on for three more years with my contract. And um, when I left AS Solution uh, almost three years ago, we were uh, at 60, almost 70 million on track to do uh, 100. And we had about 700 employees in about 18 countries. And then over the years, while I built AS Solution, I, uh, I've started a couple of other companies that I ran on the side, but it was all companies who would um, do some kind of a service for executive protection. I've never really um, been a big entrepreneur outside of this protection industry because, I don't know, I still am so passionate and so interested in this industry that I can't really see myself doing anything else since... Uh, yeah, this is where my heart lies and this is kind of what I do, right? And um, that's also why when pandemic hit and um, I left AS Solution and I was kind of semi-retired, I realized that um, I needed to do something. So I started um, EP Access, which I'm doing now, which is primarily training and, and consultancy. So, so Christian, like, how does this work or, or what's the stats on this? Like how often do people you know, say, you know, I, I want to be in the protection industry. They do it for a couple of months and then they're like, man, this isn't for me. Is that a pretty high turnover rate? Yeah, it is. It's a very high turnover rate. <clears throat> and a lot of people realize pretty quickly it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Um, you know, a lot of people come into this thinking that they're going to travel the world all the time and they're going to do all this really, really exciting stuff. But um, waiting outside a meeting room for maybe 14, 16 hours is a long day, especially if you do it three times a week. Also, um, you know, if you work at a private residence, you sit in a small command center and watch the cameras. You go a couple of patrols. And um, besides that, you make sure that nobody kind of like jump the fences or, or do anything to, to harm the family that's in there. It can be... Um, 
it can be pretty boring in the long run, right? So if you come into this thinking that this is kind of like an action figure type job, you'll definitely uh, regret it pretty soon, right? How do you make sure people don't know, know, suffer from a monotony, boredom, you know, and lose, lose their focus? Yeah, that's be hard because I was army pulling guard duty a lot of time when I was enlisted, man, it's just, it's just so boring, right? It's just hard to like keep focused. It is. It's very hard to keep focused, but the agents that you try to recruit for this, um, if you can find people who are pretty mature and maybe have had some experience from the military or from law enforcement or, or whatever, or is very motivated, there is a couple of things that's really good in executive protection, and that is that we can, one, pay relatively well. And yes, it might be a boring job, but it's not a shitty job, right? At least you sit in a con uh, if you sit in a control center or whatever. Typically, um, it's 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 nice, right? And the shifts are typically long, and the guys that you work with are typically good guys with the same background that you click with and stuff like that. And then it's up to you as a leader to figure out ways to um, motivate, train, um, and figure out how do we keep these guys engaged all the time, right? And that, I'm not going to lie. I mean, that's one of the hardest things that we do because every time people get tired or unconcentrated or whatever is when they do dumb stuff. And uh, sometimes that's very hard to explain to the clients, right? When you have maybe two or three guys in a control center, but they have to wait five minutes to get through their gate because somebody maybe didn't look at the camera and forgot to open, open the door or, or something like that, right? Um, so, so it's very important that you as a, as a manager or a CEO or whatever you do, build in ways to uh, motivate them and, and always figure out that the guys that you, are, you have are happy to be there, right? And luckily, when you, when you can pay them a lot of money for a relatively unskilled job, you can recruit some, some really good guys that, uh, that understands that. So let's suppose you, you hire someone brand new today. And they ask you, like, what, what's my career path, right? Or for future development? Like, do you tell them, like, if you stay with us for 10 years, you'd be head of a security company or manager or something? Like, what's the career path look like? Well, that's what we try to do, right? Because um, typically most people that start would um, start working at a, either a private residence or a corporate EP team. And um, they would be um, typically starting up doing. Um, low to mid-level duties, and then they grow from there to come on, uh, let's say, the uh, we call them residential agents or RST agents when they start. And it's typically the ones that do the high-end um, static security. And then they grow from there to become uh, travel agents and uh, executive protection agents and um, shift leads, potential supervisors, and if they move on from their executive protection managers, right? Not everybody's cut out in EP business to be a manager like, like in any business, right? But the perfect career ladder would be that you start as a um, high-end static security agent in a residence or on a corporate team, grow from there into the EP team, come into supervision, and then hopefully could be an EP manager or security manager down the road. So Christian, how does this work? Let's suppose you, you assign a, someone to a client because they're, no, they're, they're more qualified, they're, they're way more qualified. But a client uh -huh. says, no, I actually prefer this person. But in your mind, you know, this other person is like less qualified. How, yeah. how, 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 how does that work? 
That's a really, really, really good question. That is one of the hardest questions to um, kind of address, right? Because what happens a lot of times is, um, you know, first of all, everybody is a security expert. All your clients are security experts, right? So uh, they, they always know what they want, right? But a lot of these uh, individuals that we work for are very, very, first of all, most of them are like very, very smart people. They all built great companies or made great fortunes or did great things, right? And typically nobody says no to them either because they have reached that status that they have, so they need security. And, you know, a lot of times they kind of like love this person and they don't see who he is or where he fits in the team. And it goes back to what I talked about again earlier on of not overstepping your boundaries and get too close to the client, right? Because if you do get too close to the client, it's very easy for the clients to start loving this guy or girl. And um, they might not be what the client needs. But a lot of times, if they really, really throw their uh, eyes on this guy and they want him to uh, either run the team or they want him to be promoted or whatever, all you can do as a manager is um, have a dialogue with the client and try to convince them of why it is the way that it is. And, you know, a lot of people who have had security for a long time, they understand this, but a lot of newer families and newer corporations or whatever who haven't had security for a long time, they can fall into this very, very easy, right? And a lot of the guys that works in security are really strong personalities themselves. So they're really, really good at selling themselves to the client, right? So it's it's a constant balance that you have to have. But if you um, have been doing this for a while, once you um, kind of like sign your contract with the client and you start talking to the client or whatever, this is something that you kind of prepare them for can happen. And if you hear and see this happen earlier on, it's always a good idea as a security company to be proactive and reach out to the clients about this, right? Because most of the clients we work with can understand it if you kind of present it the way that I just presented it now and say, hey, I get this is the nicest guy in the world, but he doesn't have the management experience to run this team. So why don't we let this manager run it and we try to build this guy up to become a leader for you. So a year or two down the line, he can take over if that's what you still want, right? And then you work with the clients that way. Because if you don't work with the clients, they're just going to tell you this is the way it is and then uh, let you go, right? Oh, Christian, how do, how do you deal with this? Like, so let's suppose a client has a like, close family, close friends. Have you, how, have you, how in the past have you dealt with them, like, quote unquote, interfering with what you're doing? Oh, that's another, uh, that's another great question, you know? Most, um, most we, we, we usually say that, um, you know, the client is not always the customer. The client is the guy that we protect, but a lot of times it's the EA or it's the security manager or whatever who's the real customer, right? So now you have two masters that you need to make happy. You have the client, of course, and then you have whoever you work for, which can be the security manager, it can be the EA, it can be the EP manager or whatever. Yeah, but then on top of that, yeah, also- I have to imagine too, you get calls from the wife, the spouse sometimes, like, I know my husband or, or wife said this, but yeah, I need you to do this. Yep, exactly. But it also comes back to when you built the contract to begin with, instead of maybe doing one executive protection team, you do a couple of teams within the team, right? 
So the wife and the kids have certain agents that are assigned to them that do it in a certain way. The principal that might still be running a big company or whatever, have a team that's assigned to him that does it a certain way. And then you figure out uh, when they're all together, it's typically the wife and the kids team that takes over because they like it in a certain way or, or whatever, right? So, so it's also about how do you build the teams for the clients, but it is, it is a common problem. And especially in, um, you know, a lot of times in the celebrity world and all of that stuff, there are entourages who have big opinions on security, good or bad, right? Because it can also go the other way that the entourage can be uh, way too friendly with security and get them to over, get security to overstep kind of like their balance and stuff like that, right? So it, it is something that you always have to work on so we don't fall into that trap. Christian, what, what do you do for fun? Um, I'm a big outdoors guy, believe it or not. We, um, I like to go out with my Jeep. I like to be out in nature. I like to uh, go out and explore. I used to say I like to travel, but um, you know, I traveled <laughs> my whole life for work. Um, I, I still like to travel, but if I can uh, go out with my Jeep at the moment and explore like the national parks or go off-roading or camping or whatever, that's, that's really what I enjoy doing at the moment. But I'm also one of those guys that, uh, you know, kind of uh, switch it up a little bit. So, um, yeah, right now it's, it's, it's camping and then going out into nature, which, which is a big thing for me. And how do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you take care of your wellness to make sure you don't burn yourself out and know you're healthy and all that kind of stuff? Well, right now, um, I'm working at my little startup here, which is not, um, as demanding as it was when I was running AS Solution. When I ran AS Solution, I traveled somewhere between 250 to 270 days a year. and was always on the road, living on hotels and doing uh, client and uh, customer dinners and lunches every day and stuff like that. And it was very, very hard, right? Because you're always on the go. So it's very hard to find your workout routines and it's very hard to find uh, places where you can kind of like... Uh, calm down and then and, and get your sin on and stuff like that. So for me, pandemic has actually been really, really good, right? Because when pandemic hit, I was kind of forced to uh, stay at home and uh, only do work through the computer and not be on the road all the time and stuff like that. So it's it's been really good. But I try to work out as much as I, I can. And I try to, again, get out into nature. One of the things I always tried to do when I was traveling and stressed was to build in a couple of hours to be a tourist. So when you go to all these different destinations, you actually had time to go for a walk before you try to take home or see uh, the two sites you had to see in Washeva uh, or wherever you were, right? That, that helped a lot. And then it's a question about figuring out as a leader, you know, the whole thing of uh, delegating and not being a micromanager and uh, figuring out what what do I need to be involved in and then what can the guys and, and the girls that works for you figure out and then what do they actually do better than you and then develop that in the team, right? And that's really where your real wellness comes from because then it becomes kind of fun to see things grow by themselves. On a day-to-day -day basis, how do you make sure you focus on like the top priorities versus going to priority number 21? Oh, that's so hard for me because um, I'm very self-taught in everything I do. And... Um, I have a great, I, I always, forget me if I uh, use the wrong uh, acronyms here, but um, I got a great deal of, uh, is it called AD, ADHD or? ADHD, uh, yeah, ADHD. Yeah. 
So it's very hard for me to uh, focus and sit still. And, and actually, before pandemic, I refused to believe that I could work from home because it never worked for me before, right? But it's funny how once you don't have a choice, you kind of figure out your own system. And for me, it's it's very much as though practical as it can get. You know, you figure out the two or three things you need to get achieved that day and actually schedule it on your calendar so you have time for it. You know, a lot of people that, that work from home or a lot of people that are self-taught leaders and stuff like that think that answering emails is kind of your job or, or whatever, right? And it's really not, right? It's about figuring out what do I need to make this work? And then one of the things I really started on here um, during pandemic is to eliminate the noise, right? I don't really have any or too many pop-up emails anymore. I don't really have too many pop-up things that pop up on my computer. I have to go out and look for all of that if I want to see it, right? I stay off social media and long periods of the day so I can get, get some work done, right? Else I get distracted and I'm all over the place. And, and you know, it's, it still happens, but then I've also now I'm 53. I also figured out that, you know, it's not the amount of time that you sit in front of your screen. It's more being effective in the time that you sit here. So if you have to take a break for a couple of hours, you can, you can work at night or you can work early in the morning. I'm, I'm a very early riser. So typically for me, for, uh, from 6 till 9, 10 is my most productive hours, right? And, and that fits really well, but that's before most people start reaching out to you or whatever. So, so that works pretty well. So Christian, your, your current company is EP Access, correct? That's correct. So you already talked about the sum, but can you go in more detail, like why you started the company, what you focus on now, or what you see the future of your company being? Well, we're focusing on, on training and the pri primary delivery form right now is online, but online training is, is not enough. There's also physical training and we're building that at the moment. And um, what we are right now is a training company. And then myself, I also do uh, uh, some consulting because I've been doing this for such a long time that there's a lot of former clients, a lot of colleagues and whatever who needs um, help with very specialized projects, very specialized design of teams and uh, a lot of troubleshooting, um, you know, a lot of times um, clients need to hear potential problems from other EP people than their own EP people so they can kind of like have maybe a better object objectified uh, opinion on, on problems. I, I, I do a lot of that. I really enjoy this at the moment and um, we're, we're growing, but it is very small compared to what I was used to do. I mean, I have uh, one employee besides myself and then a couple of 1099s. And when I left AS Solution, I had over 700 employees, right? So it is a totally different ball game. And I don't know. We'll see. We'll see where, where we go in the long run. Maybe we're going to add some more services later on. But um, right now, it's, it's this, this is what I do. And I really enjoy the training aspect. I built most of the courses myself. And what I really like about it is that it really makes me think about the core of the protection kind of industry that I, I love, right? Because all the experiences that I put into my courses that I want to give on, you really have to sit down and, and, and think the whole thing through. And, and, and I really, really enjoy that. 
do you ever see yourself retiring? Um, I guess everybody retires at one point, <laughs> but um, you know, I've been lucky enough to sell two companies in my lifetime and I'm still only 53. I can definitely see myself go 10 more years, but I also know now that I don't want to be back on the road 250 days plus. There's no need for that anymore. So I hope that I can find a balance where I can uh, still work another 10 years. And I think, um, I think I still have a lot to contribute. I think um, I can give a lot to the industry that I really love still. So yeah, I would say at least another 10 years before that could even be, be a real thing. So talk about this. Like we're both in our 50s. Like I'll use myself as an example. Like right now, like I have so much focus, drive, energy. Like when I was, if you would ask me in my 20s, I'd be doing it in the 50s. I'm like, I'll probably like send the, send the rocket ship somewhere, like drinking tea, whatever. But like, like right now, like I have so much more to offer, right? Can you talk about like having the focus and drive at this at the stage of your life? Yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's one thing that I, I, I really miss that I had in all the companies that I had. And that is probably one of the things that, that could motivate me to uh, go out and do way more. And that is, um, I've never been good at working on something all along, right? I'm really good at getting my creative thoughts out and solving the problem and getting the context together. But I always really liked vibing with the teams that I had. And the startup that I have now, I don't think that'll ever be a team business, right? So I really, really miss that. And I can see that um, when I go out for camping and, um, you know, I do that with some of the guys I used to work with and stuff like that. We talk about the old days and we all get like fired up and motivated and stuff like that. So being in, in the 50s where I am now, I mean, I'm in probably the best shape I've ever been in. I'm in the best, best mental headspace I've been in in a long time. I'm super motivated at the business I'm at now. And it kind of comes natural, right? So if I want to add more to my business or either start another company one more time or be part of another company one more time, I know that it would have to be with some other people because I really like that kind of company vibe and, uh, you know, the little bit of comp competitiveness and, you know, um, celebrating the victories together and crying over the defeats together and stuff like that. I, I, I really miss that part. Right. And, um, I think like, like anybody who's been a leader and then, then taking it to a certain level or whatever, a lot of us, we get kind of like very uh, aware of who we are as people. Right. And I think, um, I think it's going to be hard for me to satisfy myself for another 10 years with this online and training platform. It, it, it probably going to need more because I started kind of like feeling the urge to um, kind of go out full speed again, if that makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. So Kristen, is there anything else that I asked you that I haven't asked you yet or anything else you want to talk about? Well, I'm, I'm I actually got to give it to you, Jason. You've, uh, You've done some really good research. I've been super lucky <laughs> because you uh, cornered most of the hard questions that people ask in EP. You know, the stuff about the favoritism with the clients, the whole thing about uh, how do we avoid to fall into the favorite syndrome and, and all of that. And yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, this has been really, really interesting, especially because you and I don't know each other. And most of the stuff that I do are typically with security professionals. So it's been, uh, it's been really, really interesting. I mean, thanks, thanks, thanks. Um, 
do you, do you have social media or anything so people can reach out to you? To you and your yeah, company? I do. I mean, I'm, I'm big in on LinkedIn. Uh, Christian West, my company on LinkedIn is called uh, EP Access. I um, run on the website, like uh, you mentioned, I run a blog that talk about uh, executive protection and, um, and stuff like that. It's www.ep access and then go under the blog. But besides that, I'm on Facebook and I'm on uh, Instagram as well. So just search for EP access and I should, should pop up right there. And to listen, we have the links to social media on the show notes. You'll find the show notes at www.cabinetstatesblog.com. Be sure to share this episode with your friends and your network and rate, review, and subscribe to Jason's Cabinet Experience. So, Christian, we're coming in of a talk. Can you give us any last-minute wisdom or, or advice or anything you want to talk about? No, I think um, I think we talked about a, a lot of things, and I feel like I've I've talked a lot. So um, I don't really have anything that that pops up unless you have something that uh, that we kind of missed. Christian, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Christian. Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Now, to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day.